Thank you, choir, and thank you, Dr. Long, for that. Uh, And if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 7, where we will begin in verse 10. Now, as you do that, let me just say a couple things before we get started. First, uh, I would remind you that last week we began what will be uh, sort of a a brief interlude in our trek through Luke, uh, a study that I am calling A Christmas in Isaiah. Uh, Now, I gave you my reasons for choosing Isaiah then, so I won't rehash those now. Uh, But if you were not here, or if somehow you had forgotten, and I realize that that was hard to believe that you would forget, but if you have, be advised that this is the plan uh, for the next few weeks. Secondly, uh, if you were with us, you'll recall uh, that we begin our foray into uh, Isaiah uh, by considering chapter 9, and that familiar prophecy in verses 2 through 7. And what we saw there were three things, uh, three things in context. First, we saw the need of a Savior. We saw that Israel, they were walking in darkness due to their sin and due to their rebellion. Uh, And so they had this great need, whether they realized it or not, of a Savior. Secondly, we saw the, the promise of a Savior, this child who would be born. Uh, This child who would be the the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. He would bring light to this people who were walking in darkness. And then thirdly, we saw the assurance of a savior. You know, we said giving the, the, the failure and the rebellion of the people, it would have been easy for them to wonder, maybe even ask, how could all of these great promises possibly come to be? Uh, wasn't there a way where God might turn away from it? There, there was no way in and of themselves they could bring these things to pass. And God, uh, in his grace, he anticipates that response because there, at the very end of that passage, he declares that it is the zeal of the Lord who would accomplish all of these great things. Throughout that passage, God presents himself as a mighty warrior. And it is that warrior God who will fight for his people and who will bring them salvation. Now we said through all of that, that that there was certainly fulfillment in the the time of Isaiah and the time of Israel. And all along the way, there has been sort of minor fulfillments. Uh, But clearly there is a greater fulfillment that was on the horizon one that was coming, and we know that that greater fulfillment, the one that completed it all, was Jesus Christ our Lord. He shows the full extent of the zeal of the Lord. He is the one who truly brings light into a dark and dying world. And so that's where we've been. And then thirdly, by way of introduction this morning, I would also remind you that having been there and having started in Isaiah 9, uh, you might expect, and rightly so, that, that we would be moving forward sort of deeper into this book of Isaiah this morning. But as I'm sure you have noticed there in your bulletin, uh, we are actually moving backwards. Uh, now, despite what you may think, there actually uh, is or was a method to this madness. Uh, Isaiah 9 uh, was a good intro into this study, or at least I felt like it was. And now here in Isaiah 7, 
we have, or we're actually going to begin uh, to consider what this Messiah would actually be like. That's what we were going to do. Specifically, I wanted us to consider this idea of the virgin birth. We were going to see uh, the person of Christ, God made flesh, that, that he is on the one hand fully God, but then that he was also on the other hand fully man, that this hyperstatic union, uh, the, this uh, one person uh, with two very distinct natures. We were going to consider the, the character of Christ and what what the, the virgin birth and the fact that he was God and man, what that meant for his character, that he was sinless, that he did reveal to us the glory of the Father. But then in his humanity, that, that he was also humble, that he took the lowest place, that, that he was dependent even on his mother as a child, dependent in every way, just like us in every way, except without sin. And then finally, we were going to consider what all of this meant for the work of Christ. That as God, he, he is our representative. He is the only one who can stand before the Father and represent us as God. He was the only one who could fulfill the, the righteous requirements of the law. Then on the other hand, as man, he is the only one who could be our substitute. He had to be fully human to represent us as Adam represented us in the garden. And so in the virgin birth, uh, we have a doctrine that is not just a fun addition or a fun miracle to debate uh, this time of year. But I wanted us to see that we have a doctrine, we, we have a truth that is necessary and unavoidable for redemption. The world may dismiss this sort of thing. Probably they even will make fun of it. But we as Christians cannot do so. If salvation was to be a reality, then the virgin birth was and is required. And so whether we can wrap our minds around it or not, whether we can sort of articulate it or really begin to grasp it in all of its fullness, whether we can do that or not, by faith, we believe it, and we glorify God for it. Now, I say all of that to say, again, that that's where I was planning to head. <laughs> but I'm speaking of all of this in past terms, because as is so often the case, uh, God this week sort of blew up my nice, neat little plans. Uh, and he did it by way of context, and he did it by way of of one little word, one little word you see there in verse 14, Emmanuel. You know, as I, as I began to, to look at this passage as a whole and with all of the circumstances that surround it in mind, what became clear was that the most amazing thing was not that a virgin would conceive and give birth, but it was, as the name Emmanuel implies, that God would be with us, that he would willingly and actively and purposefully and graciously, solely of his own initiative, seek to associate with and dwell, even identify with sinful humanity. 
Friends, that's really the heart of this passage before us. Actually, it's truly the heart of all of redemptive history. What is the covenant promise? I will be your God and you will be my people. Who has God shown himself to be from the very beginning? He is the God who is willing to to spare nothing, to come and to be with his people. All of redemptive history has unfolded so that God's people may know that he is with us, and we get a, a small glimpse of that here in our passage today. And so rather than the virgin birth, Here we will note four ways God is with Israel in Isaiah's day. And we will see how all of those ultimately find their fulfillment in Matthew chapter 2 in the birth of our Savior. And so, with all of that in mind, let's read together Isaiah chapter 7 beginning in verse 10. And we'll read all the way through 8 and verse 10. Let's hear God's word together. It says, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. In that day the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rocks and on the thorn bushes and on all the pastures. And that day the Lord will shave with the razor that is higher beyond the river with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet, and it will sweep away the beard also. And that day a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep. And because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds. For everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. In that day, every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. With bow and arrows, a man will come. Will come there for all the land will be briars and thorns. And as for the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns. But they will become a place where cattle are let loose and where sheep tread. Then the Lord said to me, take a large tablet. And write on it in common characters, belonging to Meher, Shalel, Hashbaz, and I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah, son of Jerobachiah, to attest for me. And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, Call him Meher, Shalel, Hashbaz, for before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. The Lord spoke to me again, because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin, the son of Remaliah. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. 
and it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judea, into Judah, and it will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand. For God is with us. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it stands forever. Let's pray together. Father, as we come now to this portion of your holy and inerrant word, Lord, we do ask that you would be with us, uh, that you would give us the, the strength to hear from your word the truth that you would have for us. Uh, Lord, we admit that we are sinful and we are weak. Uh, Lord, we can't apply these truths to our hearts in any meaningful way apart from you. And so we pray that you would be with us in this time. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thou who was rich beyond all splendor. Well, by way of intro this morning, and I know we've already gone a long way into that, so I'll try to keep this brief. I want to try to set the stage for all of the events that we have read here in this portion of Isaiah. Now, in many ways, this will be sort of a history lesson. And as such, I realize that I'm running the risk of losing my audience here before we ever get started. But I would ask you to bear with me, because if you can... It will be important, and it will make all of this passage, all of what's happening here with Isaiah and with Ahaz, it will make all of it make a lot more sense. And so, with with that being said, as you know, during this time in Israel's history, uh, the kingdom has been divided. Uh, you have the, the northern section, what, what retained the name Israel, and always, it has been the less godly of the two sides. Consistently, the kings are described there as bad. Uh, they bring in false worship from pagan gods over and over and over again. Uh, and they bring in pagan practices to the people. And so that they lead the people away from God more often than not. And particularly here, you have this Pekah, son of Remaliah, who is the king in Israel. You also have, since the kingdom is divided, you also have the, the southern section, which took the name Judah. And it is consistently in Scripture viewed as the better of the two. Uh, you know, as a whole, the kings there are better. Uh, the, the Jerusalem and the temple are located in the southern kingdom. And so you had a more consistent worship. It was at least in theory, true worship of God as he prescribed. And so all in all, the, the southern kingdom was able to, to keep it between the lines uh, for the most part, we might say. That is, except for at this particular moment. Uh, right now, it is King Ahaz who is ruling in Judah, and he is a bad king. If you go back to the book of Kings and you read of Ahaz, you will read that he has done what is evil in the sight of the Lord. And so things are not great in Israel, whether it's the northern kingdom of Israel, whether it's the southern kingdom of Judah, Things are bad for God's people. And that becomes even more true when you consider sort of the wider political scene. 
there was this growing threat to all independent states, and that threat was the rapidly expanding nation of Assyria. Now, if you know your history, if you know anything about Assyria, you know that they not only were very powerful, but they were vicious, that they were terrible in their acts towards the peoples that they conquered. And they seemed to be uh, intent on conquering the whole of the known world. Well, in response to that, uh, and this gets us to our passage this morning, the northern kingdom had formed an alliance with their neighbors to the north, Syria, to try to resist Assyria, and they wanted to recruit as many people, as many nations to their cause as they could. And of course, uh, they wanted Judah to take part in that. So let me pause. Is everybody with me? We, we, I haven't lost anybody yet, right? You have the northern kingdom. They're bad. They have now made an alliance with Syria, who is also bad. And they are wanting to fight against Judah, who is typically, typically good, but in this case is also bad, so that they can resist Assyria, who is coming to fight against all of them, who's coming to conquer all of them. Now, you with me? You following along? You track? I hope so. The problem was when, when the northern kingdom attempted to recruit the southern kingdom to come and help fight, uh, Ahaz had no particular desire to align with the northern kingdom, and I think that was for two reasons. One, uh, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom rarely got along. They really didn't like each other all that much. And so he didn't really have any uh, desire to, to align himself with the king from the north. But secondly, and I think maybe more significantly, Ahaz was afraid of Assyria. He, he, he was afraid of what Assyria might do to his people. He didn't want to get involved in the mix. And so he refuses. And as a result, the northern kingdom and, the, and Syria, uh, they turn around and they attack Judah in order to conquer it and to use its resources for its cause against Assyria. All right, everybody still with me? Everybody understanding where we're headed here? Well, if so, I want you to turn back to, to chapter 7 and verses 1 through 3, because maybe this will help clear up the picture just a little bit, okay? It says, In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And so that's, that's the situation. That, that's where we are. Uh, Israel is attacking Judah, and Judah is afraid. But real quick, I want you to notice God's response to Judah. You know, Ahaz is, is a bad king. But, but, but he's the rightful Davidic king. And so the promise from 2 Samuel chapter 7 is still for him. And so there in chapter 7 and in verse 4, 
God says, say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear and do not let your heart be faint because of the two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin in Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and let set up the son of Tabil as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord your God, It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within sixty-five years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. And if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. In other words, God here comes to Ahaz, sinful Ahaz, sinful Judah, and he gives comfort. He says to him directly, don't be afraid. He gives him assurance. Ephraim will fall. Israel will fall. And then in verse 9 there, he gave them command, a, a command. He says, have faith. Believe in me. If you do not have faith, you will not be firm at all. In other words, God is saying to Ahaz, I got this. Trust in me. Now, given what we have said about Ahaz, let me ask you, how do you think he received that? How do you think he received God's word? Do you think he received it with faith and belief? No, he, he received it with the opposite. In 2 Kings chapter 16, we learn that rather than looking to God to deliver him, Ahaz instead makes an alliance of his own, and you guessed it, he made it with Assyria, with this nation who is ruthless, this nation who is conquering the whole known world. Rather than trusting in the Lord... Ahaz makes an alliance with this foreign nation. Now, this is an alliance that's going to cost Ahaz much in the way of gold from the temple, and eventually it's going to cost him his independence. But for now, this is the bed he has made, and this is the bed that, that we are uh, approaching as we turn to Isaiah chapter 7. Now, you still with me? <laughs> you still got all of that? Are we all on the same page? I hope so, because it's in response to all of that that, I, that Isaiah speaks here in verse 10. And in so doing, God shows how with his people, uh, really all of his people, how, how much he truly is Emmanuel, God with us. And so notice there, uh, firstly in this passage, that God is with us. He's with his people, even in our rebellion. He is the God who is with us, even in rebellion. Despite God's assurances, despite God's commands, Ahaz has made his alliance, and now we might expect God to finally turn away, to finally wash his hands of such a disappointing king. But notice, God does not do that. Uh, he had made a promise to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, a promise of an eternal throne. And so in light of that, in verse 10, he commands Ahaz to, to ask a sign of the Lord. 
And not just any sign, but one that in the second half of verse 10 you see there is as deep as Sheol or is as high as the heavens. In other words, God is saying to Ahaz, ask the most outlandish thing you can think of so that I may show you, despite your sin and despite your rebellion, how committed I am to your cause. Ask so that you can know those things I said about comfort and assurance and faith. They are true and they are a real foundation for you. God is basically giving Ahaz sort of a freebie here, an open invite to test the extent of God's kindness. Notice that for those sort of of mired in rebellion and sin, as Israel was, as Judah was, even a freebie is hard to accept because in verse 12, Ahaz says, I will not ask. And I will not put the Lord to the test. Now, on the surface, this sounds pretty pious. You know, after all, God had said in Deuteronomy 6 and in verse 16 to not put the Lord to the test, not put the Lord your God to the test. Uh, So Ahaz could say, and he, he probably would say here, he was just following through with God's word. The issue here is that God has commanded him to ask. Not only that, but all of Ahaz's piety, it's really just sort of a smokescreen to try to hide the reality of the alliance that he has already made. You know, He's not worried about honoring God. He's not worried about keeping God's word here. No, he's done things his own way, And seemingly in his own mind, he has everything under control. And so he doesn't need, at least in his own mind, any sign from God. He doesn't need to see the extent of God's kindness because he is trusting only in himself. Well, surely now God will turn away. Surely he will simply allow all of this to take its natural course. Assyria will will conquer and that will be that. But look at verse 13. Isaiah is flabbergasted with Ahaz. But God, in verse 14, he is still with his people. Despite their sin, despite their failure, their lack of faith, he is with them. And he says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and you shall call his name Emmanuel. He has refuses, but God does not give up. Friends, what a gracious God this is. He he owed Ahaz nothing, but due to his promises, because of his great faithfulness, he would not abandon his people. He is Emmanuel even in rebellion. Secondly, in this passage, I want you to notice that he is the God who is with us to give us hope and assurance and faith. I'll be honest, I struggle to find the right word to describe this, but recognize here why it is that God gives this sign. Yes, he he is doing it to show his power in the virgin birth, but he's doing it, as we will see, to, to redeem. 
then he's also right now, he is doing it so that Ahaz and Israel will know that they will trust that he, God himself, is with them. And that he, through means of this son, this child that is coming, that he is sufficient to deliver them from Israel and from Syria and the north, and that he is sufficient to deliver them from this conquering nation, Assyria, who they are now in league with. Essentially, the sign will be a confirmation that they don't have to be afraid, that they don't have to seek foreign help, because their God, as we saw last week, he will fight for them. He is greater than than any earthly power. He's greater than any earthly circumstance. He is with them to give them hope. Now the question becomes, when and how does this sign find its fulfillment? When, When does it actually come? And there's two schools of thought here, and I'll just mention this quickly. Some see only a future fulfillment here, only in a future Messiah, Uh, But some see a double fulfillment, a fulfillment for Israel in their time and a fulfillment for the future in the coming Messiah. And I fall into that second camp. The the text seems to play this out because if you turn to chapter chapter 8 and in verse 1, you see uh, that that the Lord promises this child, Meher Shalal Hashbaz, uh, who seems to, to bring at least a partial fulfillment of all of these things that God has promised. If not this child, certainly you could think ahead to King Hezekiah, who is going to be a good king of Judah, who's going to do very many good things in the kingdom. And you can even think ahead to, to King Cyrus uh, later on while the people are in, in exile. You know, he is a foreign king to be sure, but often he is sort of portrayed as this deliverer, this one that God uses to deliver his people. And so my point is, is there seems to be, in some ways, a partial fulfillments all along the way. And in each case, God is assuring his people of his presence. And in each one, he is preparing the way for the one who would fulfill completely All he had ordained. God, he is Emmanuel with his people to give hope and to give faith. Thirdly, in this passage, I want you to notice that that God is with his people in judgment. You know, Ahaz essentially rejects the sign of the Lord in chapter 7 and verse 12. The people reject the witness of this son. Meher Shalal Hashbaz, uh, both uh, thinking they have brought victory for themselves through Assyria. Uh, They reject the the revelation, the authority, the sovereignty of God. His presence with them, they reject it, only to find that, that if they will not receive him as their helper and king, then they will experience him as their judge. Due to that rejection, you know, if they will not bow before him, if they will not have him as their Lord, then they will have him as their ruler, as their judge. You see that in chapter 7 and in verse 18, God will devastate 
He will devastate the promised land. You see it in chapter 8 and verses 5 through 8. God will devastate his people. And notice how he will do it. He will do it through their supposed salvation. This this salvation that they have basically bought for themselves. The king of Assyria. In all of his glory, he is just a pawn in the hand of Israel's God. In this case, he is a pawn to bring the, the consequences of rejecting God. He is the God who is with them to bring judgment. But notice, in in chapter 8 and in verse 8, he is also the God who is with them in judgment. Now, Now, if you have gone to sleep or if I have lost you in this time... Come back to me right now because this this is the most important part. This is the part, and I wrote this, so that's easy for me to say, but but this is the best part of it all. Listen to to what he says there in chapter 8 and at the end of verse 8. He says that all of this devastation will reach even to the neck and its outspread wings will fill to the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Oh, Emmanuel. Listen to, to what one uh, commentator, uh, well, one comment, I didn't bring my notes, but one commentator describes this as God not only being with his people, but God suffering with his people. He suffers in the land. He suffers right along with the people as they experience these judgments. To sum it up, Emmanuel shares the the tribulation, the affliction of these who belong to him. That's how near he is to them. That's how committed he is to their cause. He is with them in judgment. Fourthly and finally, I want you to notice that God is with his people in redemption. In chapter 8 and in verse 9, the focus turns from the judgment of Israel to the judgment of the nations that oppress them. Yes, the, the people will suffer rightly under Assyria and Babylon, but that will not be the last word. No, even these great nations will be broken. They will be shattered. They all will come to nothing. And why is that? Well, it's because of Emmanuel. That, that, that Emmanuel in verse 10. He will redeem. And friends, that the history of Israel declares the truth of those words. Assyria and Babylon ultimately are defeated. They are laid waste. But the remnant, that, that small faithful portion of God's people, it endures. As he promised, he was with them so no power could overcome them. Salvation is of the Lord. Emmanuel redeems. Now, we we have come through all of that, and I don't think I have mentioned the birth of our Savior once, and somebody out there is thinking, I thought this was a Christmas series. Well, Well, friends, truthfully, it is. Because as we recognized last week, what is what is true for Israel on this small, very specific scale at this very specific time in history is true for all people. And it finds its ultimate fulfillment only in one place. Yes, there, there were many examples of these truths along the way. 
that there were many examples in the exile, in the redemption from exile. But as we have said, all of it was pushing ahead to one place, a place we recognized and confirmed in Matthew chapter 1 and in verse 18. We turn there. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And all of this took place to, to fulfill what the prophet has said there in verses 22 and 23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Friends, throughout the Old Testament, God had said, do not be afraid. He had given the assurance of his plan. He had called his people to faith through prophecy. He had even guaranteed a sign And now here to Mary and Joseph, that child would be born. The the, the true son who is Emmanuel, he would come into the world. Emmanuel, who is with us in our rebellion. He, He has seen us at our worst, and yet he is with us. Emmanuel, who is with us to bring us faith and hope. As John says in his gospel, he brings light into the world, light into darkness, light in life. He is Emmanuel who has come to bring us redemption, his name. He's going to save his people from their sins. He's going to break and shatter the nations. He's going to break and shatter Satan and his rule over us. But then finally, and most importantly, he is Emmanuel who is not just with us in judgment, though he is that, if we reject him, judgment is what we will receive from this Emmanuel, from this Christ. But he is also Emmanuel with us to bear judgment. He suffers. He takes on our plight. And he does it to seal eternity for us in the presence of God. He does it to fulfill the covenant, to fulfill the covenant promise. I will be your God and you will be my people. Friends, Jesus suffers for us. He takes the suffering that we deserve so that we don't have to. All of those sweet truths of Emmanuel have been true from the very beginning. But they are sealed upon us today. They will endure internally, eternally because the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Because Jesus has been born. Friends, what a love God has shown to us. All He owed to us was judgment. All He owed to us was wrath. And yet in the person of His Son, He has very literally given us himself during this season. We we are reminded of that truth. God is with us. And friends, what a glorious truth that is as we pray together. Father, we do thank you for that truth, that, that you are Emmanuel, that you have been with your people from the very beginning, from the garden even till now, even to the very end, through all of eternity. You will be with us, and we know that it's true. We we have the assurance of it. We don't have to be afraid because we have a Savior. We have Jesus, this child who was born in a manger 
to go to a cross to die for our sins. Lord, how we thank you for Emmanuel. And Lord, we pray that that during this time, and not only this time, but always in our lives, we would keep our hearts focused on the truth of what you have done for us, of your great love for us. Lord, uh, continue to to just walk with us, be with us. uh, Give us your sweet comfort and peace. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.